the AFC West has four playoff contenders and everyone got better except for the Chiefs. Are they still the crown jewel of the best division in football? The Broncos haven't made the playoffs in six years, the second longest drought in the league. Is Russell Wilson the missing piece or is the near 34-year-old washed? And the Chargers are stacked, but is it all sizzle and no steak? We'll discuss all of this and more on tonight's betting market outlook for the AFC West. It's at the opening bell. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Not Your Daddy's Sports Betting Podcast and Stream. We're live from Las Vegas here in Circa. Win total futures for this division. We can see the Chiefs are at the top at 10.5, juice to the over. Chargers also at 10.5. Broncos at 10. And then the Raiders and the Caboose at 8.5. I think it's very well documented that this is the best division in football. I think you could find a betting contingency that supports each one of these teams as potentially being much better than the market is currently pricing. Chargers got better. Broncos got better. Raiders got better. And who is that going to come at a cost to? In my view, it has to be the Chiefs, of course. And this is actually one of the lowest win totals that we've seen from the Chiefs for a couple of years. So it was more in that 12, 12 and a half range from last year. And they certainly didn't get that much worse, but the broader market just got that much better, specifically this division. And one of the things we'll talk a little bit more about when we get into the Chiefs preview is I have a few things to say about how I think the Chiefs are probably in terminal decline. But we'll get to that. Judah, anything stick out to you here as being attractive? Any high conviction bets from you? Yeah, I think this might actually be my highest conviction bet, which is a dangerous thing to say. I actually disagree with you. I don't think the Raiders got better. I think the Raiders under 7.5 is my favorite bet of the offseason. I think they were fundamentally a seven-win team last year, and their big-name acquisitions do not outpace their question marks. And as you said, just this division getting better and the AFC getting better. The team relied defensively on Max Crosby having an absolutely elite year. He generated like 0.25 war higher than the next edge player. That's not going to repeat itself, even if Max Crosby is a terrific player. I think Devontae Adams means more with Aaron Rodgers than the opposite. And the team lost all of its depth at wide receiver. They got good production last year from guys like, say, Jones, guys like Deshaun Jackson, even Brian Edwards. They're now trotting out Matt Collins, who's a well below average receiver. What happens if one guy goes down? What happens if you have, you're going up against secondary players who can cover? They can double-team Devontae Adams. They can double-team Darren Waller. They can take care of the, the Raiders' offense. On defensively, in the coverage unit, Casey Hayward was one of the best corners last year in the league. He's gone in Atlanta. They just traded Trayvon Mullen. This is really lacking talent basically everywhere except for quarterback and a very thin receiving group. Great points. I would say that, first of all, I agree with you. I didn't know going into my research that by the end of it, I would like the Raiders under. In fact, I thought that I was going to come away with basically no bet 
really no high conviction view from this division, assuming that these are just four playoff worthy teams and that it's really just going to be a war of attrition in this division. But by the end of my research, I saw an opportunity to bet the Raiders under. And again, my initial impression was, wow, eight and a half, man, that seems low. I probably am going to lean towards the over. And then the more I dug into the data, realized that, yeah, you know, they went 10 and seven last year. That was a mirage for sure. But nonetheless, I would still say that I think the Raider, the Raiders got better this offseason. I wouldn't say that that means that they're going to win more than 10 games because they should have won 10 games. They should have won probably seven games. And so are they better than that seven win 2021 team? Seven justified wins from that 2021 team. I think they're better than that. They had a bad offensive line last year. Now they have another bad offensive line. I definitely do take your point that they have less depth at wide receiver. So that could potentially yeah. hurt. I think the fragility angle is probably a better way of putting it. It's a much more mm-hmm. fragile team than it was last year. And yes, if everyone stays healthy, they're probably fundamentally better. But honestly, who cares? Because it's all about the context and market in which they're currently in. And that's a market which everyone else has gotten better. Which puts even more pressure on the downside. What do you think, Dan? I think you two are spot on. This offensive line is bottom five. On top of Judah's point of the health, what about Darren Waller? He has a hamstring issue, and I know he's going to have a couple weeks off here, but if you're already having soft tissue injuries and the season hasn't started, that's another key piece that's going to be kind of questionable week to week. This team has no depth. The schedule is back and forth, depending on what your perception of some of these teams are. They do get that early bye, though, and I do think it will come back to haunt them later in the year. I think there's a big question mark too. Yeah. Around Josh McDaniels. I think I like his upside, but it doesn't mean that it has to materialize here in year one, especially given the strength of this division again in this year specifically. Does anyone have any views on the chiefs at 10 and a half? Again, it was 12, 12 and a half last year. This is basically saying in this division too, that the chiefs are going to, potentially struggle to make the playoffs we know that they're going to have a very tough schedule something we'll get into but is there any opportunity here if you're like backing the chiefs and you think that they're immune to this it probably means that patrick mahomes is going to have an incredible year i'd bet him to an mvp at plus 900 right it means they're probably they're winning the division he's probably having a great year they're winning 12 13 games he's in prime position to win an mvp i think the chargers similar case to justin herbert i'd rather betting his mvp odds if he's already in the position where they're winning the division, he's probably at the forefront of the MVP conversation. You can even say the same thing about Russell Wilson. If the Broncos are winning the division, Russell Wilson's probably at the forefront of the MVP conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was something, again, when I came into my research where I was more bearish on the Broncos, came out of it slightly less bearish. This was the team that I was targeting that I would probably want to bet the under on pre-research. And then post then the Raiders were just like a screaming sell by far the best opportunity. So I think that's where you want to position. So let's look at the offensive line consensus market rankings for this division. We can see chiefs top five offensive line unit there. Chargers also 
meaningfully moved up over the offseason, also a top 10 unit. At least that's the way the market is pricing them. Broncos kind of middle of the road. And as we mentioned, we can see the Raiders there right near the bottom, third, fourth worst in the league. The biggest thing I think we're missing with Kansas City is they returned all five starters from last year. If you remember, they started three and four. The offense looked genuinely terrible, but you get five guys now. They had all last year to gel. And once they got going about week eight, they went nine and one down the stretch after that, dominating some teams. So to me, with that offensive line ranking, I think the Chiefs got to be tied for number one or two worst case scenario just because they have five guys coming back and you rarely see that in the NFL anymore. That's a good call out. I forgot to that. Yeah, the Chiefs had so much turnover on that offensive line last year, especially coming off that just getting their faces ripped off in the Super Bowl versus the Bucks. So there's a lot of turnover on that. And it was still highly rated. So it had the expectation that these guys were going to come in and they were going to fill their spots and play well. But there was skepticism that it would all come together early on in the season. And we did see that they did struggle. But then it all started to gel down the stretch. That's a really good point. And now they're in year two together, having that level of continuity. And you could make the argument then, too, that potentially the Chiefs have the best offensive line. One thing that I think is curious here, too, is the market is pretty high on the Chargers. I think Rashawn Slater has turned into one of the best tackles in the league, and there's certainly some projection that he'll continue to get better. Corey Lindsley is one of the best centers, and Zion Johnson was a top, a top pick of theirs. So I think there's almost some baked-in optimism that each player can take leaps, that Zion Johnson will live up to his expectation, Rashawn Slater will take the next step. I think the 12th is about right. And this only just seems to be consistent with how the market is really ranking and rating the chargers across the board is you're paying a premium to bet anything chargers right now. Uh, And it looks like even the market is overrating the offensive line. I think there's also just an important point about the offensive lines in general for this division. I think they actually tend to matter less than most other teams insofar as quarterbacks actually determine kind of offensive line outcomes Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert doesn't really matter if they're pressured or not. They're almost as good. They're aliens in that way where they dictate the pace of the offensive line. Russell Wilson, at least as he was in Seattle, holds the ball for so long, it's a different ball game for his offensive line because he's looking down the field. And I'm sure he's going to try and do that with Judy and Sutton as his receivers. I think Carr fits more of the mold of a quarterback who's reliant on his offensive line. But at least for the Chiefs and Chargers, it almost it doesn't matter that much. Like the quarterback's dictate the offensive line because it doesn't matter if they're under pressure or they're not under pressure. They play the same way. Yeah. So it's almost like the rich get richer and the poor get poorer here because you got the Chiefs in charge with some of the best offensive line in the division. You're saying they don't even need the best offensive lines. And then the Raiders need a good offensive line, but they have one of the worst offensive lines. Exactly. Which really goes to, who knows? Because maybe you could start to make the argument too that there's this market perception that this is a division that is very tight. And actually, maybe there is more separation here between there's Chargers and Chiefs on one side, and then there's Broncos and Raiders on the other. That's certainly how I would bucket it. One, because I think Russell Wilson is washed, and, and we'll get more into that. I think the positioning of the Raiders and Broncos is telling. 
where last year, the sense that I left the season with at least was like the Broncos were exactly league average. The Raiders were like fringe playoff team. And they were like a tier worse. They were noticeably worse than the Broncos. And we don't look at the Broncos and say, okay, this was like a playoff team, which is obviously not really the fairest way of looking at it, but it's an important point in seeing what the Raiders were last year. Yeah. Because the Raiders made the playoffs, the Broncos didn't. Exactly. All right, let's get into the Raiders. 2021 came into the season with a win expectation of eight. They sailed past it, but perhaps unjustifiably so. They went 10 and seven, so went two games over. Pythag had them at 6.9. Our Pythag 2.0 had them slightly better, but in that seven win range. Went eight and nine ATS, but nonetheless did win a 100 unit, $100 unit better. $876 betting the spread and money line over the course of the season. And certainly that's not coming from the spread side going eight and nine more so coming from money line wins, kind of winning some key games, some big upsets. Certainly one of them was there right off the bat uh, in week one versus the Ravens on Monday night football came back. And then even coming off that Ravens win, everyone really dismissed the Raiders we're almost a touchdown underdog on the road versus Pittsburgh. And then I think this is, and we can see here, as I don't even need to think, but after this win was really when the market then started to buy in to the Raiders. And we can see that was essentially where they peaked. They tested it once more kind of mid-season. But even as they kind of got a little bit stronger into the end of the season, at least from winning perspective, winning four in a row to end the season and getting into the playoffs. In fact, they're at their lowest point from the ELO model, again, power ranking perspective. Again, so quite volatile, but even though they got, again, ostensibly better in the second half of the season, this would say, in fact, they are a worse team in the second half of the season. I love this chart for two reasons. Number one, each of the first three weeks that the Raiders they're their first three opponents, the Ravens, the Steelers, Dolphins, right? The Ravens being power ranked sixth, the Steelers being power ranked ninth, Dolphins 17th, retrospectively look absurd because we know the Ravens didn't turn out to be the sixth best team. The Steelers, not the ninth, etc. which I think makes a broader point of kind of the dangers of projecting too much about schedule, uh, especially early on in the season. We don't really know who's going to be that great. The second thing is just the Raiders didn't really have the quality wins we thought they did. The first three wins were like Ravens and Steelers didn't turn out to be much. And they got absolutely tranced by their opponents. They get lost to the Chiefs 41-14, 48-9, and some awful losses to to the football team, to the Giants, to the Bears. Two models, at least, were convinced this team was nothing going into the playoffs. Keep in mind for that Ravens-Steelers game, too, the Ravens came into the game banged up in the secondary to start with. The Ravens were up, I want to say, about 10 to 14 points mid to early fourth quarter from what I remember, and then they won in overtime. Steelers game, that was a nice win, but when you dive deeper, T.J. Watt got hurt mid-game, and there was another defensive lineman who got hurt mid-game too, and the Steelers had no pass rush at all. So I know it looks good on paper. Looking back, we know the Steelers weren't very good. But even in the game, I thought they were still somewhat lucky to lose two top pass rushers on the Steelers' defense. And then when you look at the box score or the final score, Raiders pretty much either got blown out or came very close to losing the games, but they won a lot of those close games. So 
they went 10 and 7. I just think they were so overrated last year because they didn't beat anybody good or they got completely blown out for the most part. And that's our, our Pythag 2.0 again, having it at around seven wins definitely quantifies that observation. And you make a really good point too in that week one is they were the Raiders, in fact, were a very popular contest pick. So they're the third, the top, a top three pick. So Going into that week one, yeah, there I, there were a lot of question marks around that Ravens team. And that's one of the reasons why they got a bump after beating the Ravens. But it wasn't too meaningful. But then kind of like after they crushed the Steelers, which the market was still high on the Steelers. The Steelers had just beaten the Bills also. Yeah. And, and everyone loved the Steelers. Because you see the Raiders with the 28th pick in week two. It seemed like the buy on the Raiders week one what really wasn't a buy on the Raiders. It was more of a sell of the Ravens. And then they wanted to come right back and sell the Raiders. And I think this is the main reason why, when you're trying to talk about market perception and why you can get some really stark overreactions, is because what this demonstrates is the market did not believe in the Raiders in week two. And then they were proven wrong. So now they're butthurt. And now they're saying, oh, well, we need to adjust. Maybe... We didn't give them enough credit for that Ravens win. Now they just crushed the Steelers on the road as a touchdown underdog. This team's way mispriced. We need to adjust fast. And that's why I think the next week, top three pick again. I love the Raiders now. And then they squeak one out. I think this was like Thursday night football, maybe. Versus the Dolphins. Jacoby Brissett. Uh, and don't cover as three and a half. This is where the crack started to form. So the market gets super hot on a team, then they can't cover the three and a half versus a subpar team, then struggle versus Chargers. And this was the really big kind of yellow flag is when they were at home versus Justin Fields. And they just were not really that competitive. In that game, win probability around 33% TWAM, the total weighted average margin minus six. They were justifiably beat. The other pink red flag from the Raiders is look at these max deficits. They were losing sizably in almost every single game. So they were losing in 15 games this season. Their average deficit when losing was 10 points. Their average time-weighted average margin for a 10 and 17 was negative at negative one and a half points, which is just another attribute to suggest that on average, this team is losing. They're losing the game on average, yet they were 10 and seven. So just another statistic to go out and say, people could say, yeah, the Raiders were overrated last year. This is a, a statistic that actually demonstrates that is the case. Even some of their wins, Jacoby Brissett, Nick Mullins they got against the, the Browns late in the season, Drew Locke, not Teddy mm. Bridgewater, Carson Wentz when he was falling apart. Uh, in their wins, they just beat bad quarterbacks. Uh, or yeah, had yeah. these lucky early season wins. And then you had that super bizarre finale versus the Chargers. 
so offseason changes. I guess we can disagree on if the chart if the Raiders actually got better over the offseason. Of course, signed Devontae Adams, everyone knows that. Also got Chandler Jones. But yeah, there's still a lot of holes on this team. Also just the continuity. I think that's the yeah. the most the players we've seen move on in one season. So basically a half new offense, half new defense. And I'll offer basically a whole new coaching staff as well. Yep. How long do you think this team takes to gel with all this new stuff? At some point, it's going to have to show up in the win-loss column. Early on, if you look at the schedule, you got Chargers week one. Week two, I believe it is the Cardinals, Titans, Broncos, Chiefs. Three of those five teams are not teams I'm going to be playing early on with new guys and new coaching staffs. So at what point do these coaching staff actually start to hurt them because the players just don't know the system yet? Yeah, that's a nasty first five weeks. We can see strength of schedule from a futures kind of implied perspective. Third hardest, net rest minus six days, mean spread around flat, kind of suggestive of an eight and a half win total expectation. To win the division plus 650, certainly at the bottom. To make the playoffs plus 150. To win the Super Bowl plus 4,000. But I can see this team starting off 0-5, no problem. And yeah, is this a type of team that has a lot of turnover? It's a new coaching staff. Are they going to really be in position to really recover from that type of adversity? That's a big question. The good point is to when you, you mentioned, Dan, that they have an early buy. Probably after those first five games, you're probably going to need a buy. Come out of that buy with a relatively easier schedule than certain that they came, started the season with. So come out of the bye versus the Texans. I'll play at, on the road versus the Saints, which that is a very generous spread at this point in time. And then the Jags, Colts, Broncos, Seahawks. So you got another, the next five games there, though, where you have three relatively easier games where you could start to pick up some wins. But then you close, again, versus a schedule that's maybe even tougher than what you started with. So closing Chargers, Rams, Patriots, Niners, Chiefs. And you throw in a Steelers there on the road in Pittsburgh during the cold, which can still always be tough traveling across country, being a California team or a desert team. If you look at that Niners game, if I'm playing the Niners this year, I want them early. A lot of people have mixed reviews on Trey Lance. Is he good? Is he not good? But regardless if he's good or not good end of the year, I'd much rather play him early later in the year. Yeah. I think in either case, it could it's downside. Just It's either you have a more experienced Trey Lance or you have a Jimmy G. And you can say the same thing about the, the Jags as too, playing the Jags in week nine. I would much rather play the Jags early on when they're still trying to figure things out. Trevor Lawrence has fewer games under his belt as well. Some of these bad teams that have a lot of roster turnover, have a new quarterback, things like that, you want to play them earlier. Same thing with the Patriots. Same thing with Patriots, yeah. Yeah, and our PyPack 2.0 model also likes the under. This five is only its like fifth bet. Yeah, five for five. Five, I think. Uh, yeah. And hopefully it goes five for five. That's right. I certainly hope so. (laughs) What's the bullish case for the Raiders? 
I can't get the nine wins on this one. I'm going to be generous and give them seven and ten in this schedule, but I am having trouble finding nine wins in the division. You're clearly the fourth best team, and you were lucky last year. So I can't even make an argument for the bull side of this team either. Dan, I'm actually glad you asked us, and I have all these talking points now about how bearish I am on the Raiders. But here's, I think, the bullish case. That Devontae Adams unlocks a Derek Carr that we haven't actually seen. Like Amari Cooper did, I'm forgetting if it's 2017 or 2016, Carr had his second best year. And Patrick Graham is a defensive wizard who turned the Giants, who had no talent last year, into a mediocre defense. And that's all they need. And chips fall right as they did last year. Everyone stays healthy. And you've got Carr throwing to Waller, Adams, Renfro. The offensive line doesn't really matter because these guys are getting open so quickly. And the Raiders win 10, 11 games. I, I think the upside happen. is the offensive line is a, is much better than we're pricing it currently. So right now it's 29th. And if they can play like a 15th ranked offensive line, I think that is going to be meaningful towards having them win more games than expected. If I had to give this team a win number, I'd say seven to eight if they're really lucky and they do pan out. At some point, all those close wins last year just have to catch up. If we're just constantly saying you're going to stay healthy, that is something I can't bet on. I don't actually even see eight. I'm being generous with the eight on this one. I think it's seven and ten, probably closer to six. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's already some very generous lines priced right currently. At this point in time, being a pick on the road at New Orleans seems dumb. On the road at Seattle, being a favorite, and I understand Seattle's going to be good, but still, that's pretty aggressive to be a two-point or three-point favorite on the road. A very short favorite on the road again at Pittsburgh. I think none of those lines will be what they're expected to be here early in the season. So I think that in itself is is saying that the market is still pretty high on the Raiders. Okay, so Broncos. 2021 came in with a win total expectation of eight, went under. Went seven and ten, eight and nine ATS, lost betters almost five hundred bucks on the spread and money line. Pythag had them around nine wins, so underperformed. Our Pythag two point also had them around eight and a half, nine wins. We can see, like with the Raiders, this team was quite volatile starting off. And this is something again, we almost sound like a broken record, Judah. Start off as a particular position. Kind of, oh, the market freaks out, thinks we need to reprice them rapidly because we are wrong. And then there's this slow drip lower back to where you started. And that that preseason prior was actually quite strong. And that, yeah, you always want to adjust on a week-to-week basis based on the matchup and all the other variables at play given at that particular moment. But this is the type of demonstration of where Maybe you don't really want to abandon your preseason priors over the course of the season. In fact, maybe it should strengthen in the second half of the season, uh, particularly if you have high conviction 
in that preseason prior and to not abandon it so quickly. Now, we know the Broncos got hurt and there was other things at play, but I think that the Broncos never really materialized into, I think, what many people thought that this team could be. That Teddy Bridgewater, the same argument is really what with Russell Wilson coming to town this year was when Teddy Bridgewater was coming to town last year. He's the missing piece. He's going to provide stability to this offense. He's going to be able to let the team rely on the strength of the defense. And the offense is just not going to create turnovers, not going to put the defense in a vulnerable position. And they're going to be able to win a lot of games that way. We know Bridgewater got hurt as well, but he did not perform the way the market was pricing him to perform. And even though they started off hot, I'm very surprised at the fact that the market reacted so strongly because this is one of the most pathetic first three wins that you could possibly imagine. Giants, Jags, and Jets. You've proven nothing. You've proven that you're, you yourself are also not one of the worst teams in the NFL. That's it. Yeah. I, I disagree with you on the Teddy Bridgewater take. I think the question last offseason was, Teddy Bridgewater is a game manager, right? Can we go 10 and 7, 9 and 8, make the playoffs on the backs of our elite defense with Vic Vancio as our defensive coordinator? I don't think they were expecting Teddy Bridgewater to be the savior. And I think Teddy Bridgewater actually outperformed his expectation. Certainly from like an EPA perspective, he was like 15th best quarterback, which is kind of exactly what you'd hope for. I think the question this offseason is not about can we win with our defense, but can Russell Wilson unlock our offense? But just we've got a lot of very talented receivers who've shown promise, but haven't actually produced very much. Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, and when they had Tim Patrick, a bunch of guys who had a lot of promise, but hadn't actually produced on the field. And the question now is, can Russell Wilson unlock that? It's a question of the offense rather than the defense. And the defense also isn't necessarily the same defense, and they're already bleeding players on offense. That's certainly true. There are a lot of question marks, and I think the defensive point is actually very important. I happen to think defensive coordinators are the most important asset, if you want to call them, of anyone on defense. I think they play a pivotal role, especially when it comes to coverage. I think the Vic Fangio loss really should not go overstated as a brilliant defensive mind who almost created his own way of defense, uh, which we'll talk about with Brendan Staley as well. But losing that should... We, we have a push and pull here, which is like, Russell Wilson's probably going to make this offense better, but is that going to... Is the delta of that going to overcome the defensive losses, not only from their personnel, but also from losing Vic Fangio? Did anyone bet the Ravens in week four? I bet the Broncos. The Broncos, yeah, I, didn't bet the Broncos. I stacked them in DFS against the Ravens. <laughs> and it was my highest. It was like, I was so excited for it. And it was a disaster. It, this is actually, I think this chart reminds me of an interesting question of like, how do you almost deal with teams who, like blow out bad opponents. I think the Broncos are a good example and a good reminder that it probably doesn't really mean much. Even if you're winning by enormous margins. No, in fact, I think that's always a great opportunity to capitalize on the market's overreaction function when teams are dominating bad teams. Beating the Giants, Jags, and Jets, who were three of literally the three worst teams in the NFL, not just at the beginning of the season, but even by the end of the season. It demonstrates that you're not in their class. 
So all you're saying is you're not one of the worst teams in the NFL as well. You're a class above that for sure. Which one is still TBD? You don't know if you're one class or two class or if you're an elite class. And as we can see here, this was a dramatic incorrect pricing. And then the next four weeks really underperformed. But I think you make a good point too, Dan, is there's not really too much that we can really take away from last season's Broncos to try to frame the issue for 2022 because you have huge turnover at the most important position on the team. And while I think Russell Wilson's best days are behind him, there's an argument out there that his injury was the primary reason why he performed as poorly as he did. Or I disagree with you, Brett. Like, people were saying Russell Wilson was washed at the end of 2020. It was a whole discussion. It was a very commonly held belief that Russell Wilson was done after 2020, well before the finger injury. So it's a longer-term trend, in fact. Not I'm even saying just, it's not. It's uh, like, yeah. it's, this, is, this has been going on for years. And they're right. Because he didn't play well in 2021. And is it all driven from his injury? I, it definitely could be. Could be. But I'm going to say it's not. I'm not going to say he's a bottom five quarterback by any means, but he's not a top 10 quarterback. Russell Wilson has been wanting out for a while. Whether or not he admits it is a different question, but Jay Glazer now for two years in a row before he got traded, he mentioned Russell Wilson wasn't happy with the team. He wasn't happy with Pete and he wanted out. Don't be surprised if he gets traded. So how much was it Russell Wilson being hurt and how much was it he really just didn't want to be there? It's something I can't answer, but he definitely didn't look right. after. I think that's fair. I think the question with Russell Wilson is almost, is his context, right? Is the delta between how much worse he got bigger than the upgrades in context, which is like getting away from a peak Kyle offense, uh, just like being in an offense where you're not strapped because you're never going forward on fourth down, which I think will change. Never went forward on fourth down in Seattle. He also knew that he had to play a conservative game because that's what was being asked of him. And Russell Wilson loves to throw the ball deep. He loves that. What if he's taking seven, eight shots a, a game deep, and he's better than anyone else because he's still going to throw that deep ball? And the Broncos' offensive line should at least be fine. If you want to look at like their block rates, like they were 10th best, according to PFF and pass blocking, right? that should count for something. I think Dan makes a great point that like there could be some human element motivating factors that were having him playing worse in Seattle because he wanted out. Mm, yeah. I would hope that's not the case because basically you're saying he's a crybaby. Uh, <laughs> and that, yeah, he's going to let it dictate his performance. He's going to sabotage his team and his own reputation in order to expedite his exit. But what do you make of the context question? Are the Broncos better than the Seahawks? Is the delta of Russell Wilson's decline so much greater than the upgrade in context that he's getting? I think it could. Yeah, I think it could be. We're going to find out. Yeah. Are they going to let him air it out deep? I feel like he's definitely lost a step with respect to He's always been smart around like not taking hits and. He's not necessarily like a run-first quarterback by any means, but certainly mobile enough to move around. And I think he's certainly lost an aspect of that in his game as well, which is certainly not tied necessarily, again, unless it's like some downstream effect from his 
injury, like decision-making. So therefore puts him in a worse position than he otherwise would be in and whatnot. But his like pocket awareness has not, I just feel like he is deteriorating. And that happens to athletes sometimes. Some athletes deteriorate faster than others. And I think he's right at that point. He's been talking about how he wants to play like Tom Brady level amount of years. And if that's the case, he can't take any more hits. Then he's got to play a Tom Brady type game where Tom Brady, as we know, has great pocket awareness and always positions himself properly to not take devastating hits. And if that's the case, he's got to make different, more conservative decisions if he really wants to play another 10 years in the NFL. So maybe that also has something to do with it as well. Like, I want to play the next 10 years, so I need to change my game if I'm going to play the next 10 years as well. That's interesting. But do I want to bet heavily that Russell Wilson is going to be bad? No. He could definitely still have a nice dead cat bounce. He's in terminal decline, but he has like a one good year, then it's back right down. So look, let's look at, at the Broncos 2022 schedule and coming in with that 10 wins plus 260 to win the division minus 145 to make the playoffs favorites to make the playoffs despite being the third ranked team in this division, plus 1,800 to win the Super Bowl. Pythag, 2.0, no bet. Ostensibly the 16th hardest schedule. Net rest, positive nine days, and a mean spread of about minus two. So favorite of two being two points on average. Start off versus the Seahawks. That's a nice way to start. Texans week two. Not a bad encore. And then you got the Niners at home. Go into the desert to play the Raiders. And then you got Colts and Chargers. Those are tough back-to-back games. And then go into the bye with Jets and Jags. That's a pretty favorable first seven games there. Keep in mind on some of those games, too. Jacksonville game, I know it's labeled away, and then they're away team here, quote-unquote. That's in London. You can also see a clear divide the last six weeks versus the first 12 weeks in terms of difficulty. Ravens, Chiefs, Rams, Chiefs again, Chargers. You have three to four divisional opponents the last six weeks. You have Ravens, who are going to be fighting for seeding purposes in the playoffs. The Cardinals... Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. Is Kyler Murray going to stay healthy? We know the Cardinals really struggle in the back half of the season. But if the Denver Broncos are 7-4, and 8-3 and three coming into Week 12, they're probably going to win this division just because I don't know if any of the other teams are going to be able to keep up with that. So if you're doing anything with overs or unders with this team, you got to be weary of the first half or the first 12 weeks versus the last six weeks. Yeah, that's a huge dichotomy, and it's going to make it difficult to – evaluate the Broncos after 10 weeks because they're ostensibly going to play looks like one of the easiest first 10 games. And then you're going to go into a gauntlet 
Ravens, Chiefs, Cards, Rams, Chiefs, Chargers. So if, if the Broncos are like seven and three and they beat the Seahawks, Texans, Raiders, Jets, Jags, and Panthers. <laughs> the only way I'd be backing the Broncos in the second half of the season, because this schedule really does look promising, is if Russell Wilson has taken the next step. Or this team could easily sleepwalk to a 7-3 record with Russell Wilson playing meh, in which case the market's probably going to be up on them. And like we've seen so many times, the market comes up just to come down. And I want to be ahead of that curve, which is the information that needs to change is that Russell Wilson needs to be really good. And they're 7-3, and three, not on the backs of sleepwalking, but on the backs of Russell Wilson playing like he is playing in 2018. What I would say to Judah is if Russell Wilson's fine, if last season was an aberration, totally due to injury, and he's going to be the let Russ cook of, you know, 2019 or whatever, then this, the Broncos are going to win the division. Then the plus 260 looks very attractive. Because they're going to be probably more like nine and two going into that division stretch. And you win two games out of the final six, puts you at 11. And that's probably going to be good enough to win the division. And if this, if you get vintage Russell Wilson from the Broncos this year, vintage, then I think the Broncos are the best team in this division, especially with this setup. Because this is this allows you to work out all the kinks develop chemistry, all that and whatnot. And if you're going to play a tough schedule, you might as well play it in the back half of the season. Again, our Chargers, everyone loves Chargers. Everyone loved the Chargers last year, too. 2021 came in with a win expectation of nine. That's been bumped up, as we know, now to 10, 10 and a half. And again, the market was hot on the Chargers going into last year. Finished nine and eight, eight and nine against the spread. Didn't make betters any money, unless you were very selective like Judah, and had a rhythm. Had some kind of weird games, tons of weird games that suggest what is it go. Again, we know that we have we've almost previewed the whole NFL now, and again, all the teams have like these dud performances, even the best. Again, the Bills lost the Jets. But you could throw the Chargers, again, right in there. And it didn't necessarily have to do with, like, Brand Staley gambling and losing, and that's why they lost. They were just getting shredded on the ground, and they didn't really fix that. They signed a lot of, just like, star players. Got J.C. Jackson, got Khalil Mack, Sebastian Joseph Day. Those are all like sexy names that makes the fans and betters even more excited. But I don't know if that necessarily all comes together. We've seen this time and time again across sports. A team signs all like the big name players and whatnot, never comes together. Rams did it last year. And again, there were some serious questions midseason whether or not it was going to work out or not. Yeah. No, I think almost the. The question with the Chargers is number one about Justin Herbert and his progression. Less so actually about how good their defensive additions are. 
but it's almost like a necessary sufficient problem where the Chargers were so bad that the run defense really mattered, but they at least plugged it with league average guys such that it won't really make a difference. So I don't think the run defense problem, which plagued them last year, is really going to apply this year at all. The Chargers are going to be the most volatile team in the NFL, which is why I was very selective with them last year. It's because I learned very early on in the season, the Chargers probably are not the best team to bet because on any given week, the variance is just so high because they're going forward on fourth downs and making two-point conversions. Their play style is generally aggressive. This is a team where I love alternate lines. I'm not really paying attention to the threes or the six or the sevens when I'm betting because these numbers are just going to be wacky. The scores are going to be wacky. Mm-hmm. The games are going to be extremely high scoring. There's a ton of variance going on. Yeah, I'm surprised this big sell-off here after the Cowboys game. I mean, came in as three-point favorites at home. Again, it wasn't a really great performance. Ended up losing. And were quickly downgraded. Then they beat the Chiefs and then rallied. Put together two good games. Another two good games versus Raiders-Browns. Then got destroyed by Baltimore. And this was one of those games where Brandon Staley gambled early in the game, and then it all unraveled, and then they ne- could never do anything. Kept getting, a, he had to keep getting more and more aggressive to try to get back in the game, and it just kept losing. But the volatility of not just over the course of the season, but intra-game with the Chargers is something that you're going to deal with. Look at these, some of these max deficits as well. 21, 10, 10, 28, 14, 11, 10, 18, 15. As teams like losing by two touchdowns, guaranteed, like at some point in time in the game. Total scoring margin over expected, minus 25, all attributable to defense. When I think of the Chargers last year, they looked awesome some stretches, and then they just got blown out by the Texans one game. I believe it was like 41-29. The Texans just kept running, and the Chargers couldn't stop it. So when you get a team like this with high volatility, even in some of those box scores, you can question the scores. It's just they were so lucky to be up 9-0, and then the Bengals had that most fluky turnover possible in that game, and they just ran away with it. So I think, to Judah's point, this is going to be another high volatile team again. Yeah. I think something that will be different from the performances we saw last year I think the offense we know we're going to get, which is going to be a top five producing units, what they were last year. I think there's only reasons to think they'll improve as Justin Herbert improves from year two to year three. I think the defense is a little bit less of a question mark, right? When you uh, get such a conglomerate of talent, uh, regardless of whether they live up to that talent, the delta between whom they're mm-hmm. like people they're replacing is going to be so great. Their defense is going to be better, which is going to mean more three and outs and more games where their offense can really control as opposed to just teams getting an early lead or even knowing let's stick with the run game because this is going to work and we'll chip away six yards at a time. That option is not going to be available in 2022. I wonder too, if Brandon Staley's decision-making is going to get more conservative this season, especially if it doesn't work early on. Because what a lot of people don't appreciate is there is far more that goes into actually optimizing a real-world decision than just what historical precedent says that you should have done in this situation based on this point in time in the game. Because he has to make a decision about his career as well. 
and about how the ownership views him, how the fan base views him, how the broader media pressure can build. Because if you just say that you made the optimal decisions, but you're still three and eight and you're trying to justify why that's just variance. Oh, I'm on the wrong side of variance, but I made the right decisions. doesn't matter. You're going to put your job in jeopardy in this league. That's just, that's it. Yeah. And I think he's smart enough to realize that. And I think, I thought we, I think we saw some of that. We that, did. I distinctly remember the Eagles game, him kicking for it on fourth and goal at the one yard line. And I think mid season, we saw him pull back after it didn't really work out. I think after the Ravens game, actually, I think he's so built his persona as the guy who does things his way. And like, I'm going to live and die by how I do it. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that like, but he's using Ben bot Ben Baldwin's fourth down decision bot <laughs> making decisions that way. But he's saying, I'm generally going to be more aggressive. I'm generally going to do all of the things that I think are the best way to win. And I'm not going to change no matter what the media says, no matter what my owner says, unless obviously the owner gives him no choice. And like, we're going to live and die by, by how I do it. If you are really sharp, that it's not about living and dying on the field. It's about also your career. Do you want to prog progress your career? Do you want to make the right political decisions, the pragmatic decisions as well, right? Not just the right optimized calculations based on probabilities and historical precedent. There's far more variables that go into overall net decision-making. And I think he is smart enough to realize that. And he's not going to live and die based on making these types of decisions, especially in high leverage situations. I think it's especially in the high leverage situations where he's going to get more conservative. And that's where I think you can start to adjust on the chargers over the course of the season is if you see some of those high leverage bets that maybe they try to execute and it doesn't work, that in fact, he's not going to. It was still the right decision, mathematically and probabilistically. And if it comes up again, I'm going to make the same decision. I don't think he's going to. Yeah. Uh, so I think he sabotage definitely... his own career because there's the higher ups. Are, it's not, it's, it's not, it's, uh, it happens in finance as well. But you get fired if you are not making money. Yeah. The defense this year in the run defense, if the offense is not having a good game and he feels pretty trustworthy in his defense, I could see him going more conservative too now. You got Khalil Mack. That whole defense is built to stop the pass. And if you're close game or slightly up and your offense just isn't having a good game, I think he's going to start punting more or not being as aggressive. There's also this push-pull too of the whole Lombardi factor about, in fact, there's others out there saying that the Chargers have been aggressive in decision-making around going for it or not going for it on fourth down and things like this, but actually have not been aggressive and actually uncorking the full potential of Justin Herbert and his talents and leveraging uh, the full field and throwing deeper more often and leveraging these great wide receivers that you have at your disposal. And instead neutering Justin Herbert and 
having a more dink and dunk oriented offense. I think we've actually mentioned in our previous episode, there is a, or Joel Lombardi knows beforehand whether or not he's going to get fourth down. So where other quarterbacks are going to throw 13 yards because they have to get past the sticks, Herbert's going to throw seven to set up fourth and two. That's the first thing I'll say. So the numbers the league's are... Gonna adjust, but the, the, the league also knows that. And so adjusts accordingly. Which is certainly true and fair. And the second thing I was going to say is it's an absolute crime that Justin Herbert, who throws one of the best deep balls, I think it's crazy that Herbert's not taking more 30, 40-yard shots with the arm he has. Even if his eight out doesn't have to be 10 for this to be an acceptable offense. It can be 8.3. And he can make many of the same seven-yard throws, but like the not allowing Herbert to throw deep, I think he had the fifth lowest deep percentage of any quarterback. That's yeah, crazy. That's, right. that's crazy. Yeah. He's criminal. Maybe... Yeah, it's criminal. Lombardi should be in jail. <laughs> I think I, I think I actually tweeted that in that exact form. <laughs> I also wonder again: eight, nine, ATS, nine and eight. Is that the byproduct of, or is that like the consequence of living and dying with playing the odds and, and oh, you're going to have like positive variance, negative variance, and then you just end up just being 500 at the end of the, at the, end of the day. And it's not going to do anything for you, especially in this division. So 2022, one and a half wins to the upside vis-a-vis 2021. So you're coming in with 10 and a half plus 220 to win the division. Minus 200 to make the playoffs. With all that can go wrong, I don't know who would bet that. Minus 200. Plus 1,400 to win the Super Bowl. PyTech 2.0, no. Our model has no bet on this. Strength of schedule implied, 13 hardest. Net rest, minus one day. Mean spread. On average, they're a favorite of a field goal. And we can see that they're pretty much favorites in every single week, except for one, looks like, versus the Chiefs. And maybe they are very short favorites on the road versus San Francisco. This is about as easy a start as you can ask for, like the Broncos. Yeah. Yes, you have the Chiefs early, but you caught the, the Browns in week five, which is probably when you want to be playing them. True. Same thing with the Jaguars. The, you look at the Texans, and again, this is it. Would have thought they would have crushed the Texans last year, and, and they lost. So obviously, a, a big word of caution there. By midseason, and just preparing them for kind of the thick of it, where they don't really have four straight incredibly tough games. But even so, the schedule is not overly daunting. In so far as schedules can be daunting and, and predictive at this point of the year. There's something I do want to talk about with this team. I feel like a failure if I don't mention this to Ronnie Sports. What about the special teams? This guy has talked me into how bad the special teams is. I know the analytics. I know the all the additions on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. This team is going to be Super Bowl contenders. Except for that, special teams, they suck. I don't care about special teams unless you're really good or really bad. And if they're anything like last year... I just think the special teams is going to come back and haunt them for a game or two. 
So does the special teams concern either of you? Dan, I just hear you on record saying we're getting a repeat of the 2006 Chargers who are first in all first in defense and 32nd in special teams. Oh, you didn't hit the zinger there, Judah. That was actually a That's it, 32nd in special teams. I know. And they missed the playoffs. Of course, of course. And they missed the playoffs. And they missed the playoffs. Yeah. Sorry. That's fine. I'm sorry. That's totally the, the – I was – but – it's on the margins, I think, especially for a team that's not going to utilize its special teams as much. If you're the Chargers, you want most of these spreads to have the least amount of variance in each particular game. Because in each game, they're probably the favorite. In which case, you want right, you want to be fair catching every punt because the punt opens up more variance. You can have a fumble, a random play, and that's not going to benefit the Chargers because you want the game to go as much on script as possible because that benefits the Chargers. If you are specifically trying to not rely on your special teams because they're not good, then that kind of puts you in the position of actually making some not optimal decisions, like actually going for it. Maybe you really shouldn't be going for it or otherwise taking the more conservative decision, which can still be meaningful. The other thing is when I feel like a lot of people don't ever, and they like almost never show this on screen and whatnot too is, oh, this is how much they can improve their win percentage if they go for it, and this is how much they can improve their win percentage if they punt it or kick a field goal, all right? So that's performance. That's return. That's the upside, all right? What's the downside? What's the risk? How much win probability do they lose if they go for it and don't make it versus how much win probability do they lose if they punt them? And then trying to look at the actually – the deltas between those as well. And then also some teams are more vulnerable to being down or being caught in a bad position because then you have to double down on your bets like we've seen that the Chargers have done as well. So it's just like, like I feel like the whole concepts are like so overly simplified that this is how much win probability you get to do this, this is how much we probably do that. And also is as if that's even the capital T truth. That's the actual win probability that you get if you do this. Yeah. It's an estimate. It's based on historical precedent. It's it. Maybe it is. Maybe it could be. Maybe it's probably is. It's a probability of a probability. I don't think Brandon Staley, again, he's not operating by what does Ben Baldwin's model say, right? He's not doing that. In the same way that he, good proof for this, right? No model is saying to throw fades to Mike Williams. What did he say? He said, your, your model is not accounting for the fact that I have Mike Williams on my team and he's going to win those 50-50 balls much more than your model, which says it's going to be at a 25% clip. He's not coaching just by what does the decision model say and that's what I'm doing. That's not how he operates. I think the analytics community, whatever that means, wants to point him that way because he can be their savior, but that's not how he makes decisions. That- yes, he is someone who more often than not cites analytics And, like, obviously the analytics people are going to cling to that. But, like, we know that's not how he makes decisions. He's very open about his decision-making process. Also, one of the reasons why I think he's he's smart as well is actually he tries – he knows that there's a certain contingency out there that, like, even using that word, like, rubs them the wrong way. And then it immediately, like, prejudices you. In fact, I've actually heard him not really say analytics law. More like information-based decision-making, which is really what it is. Evidence-based decision-making. And that's why I, too, I, 
I hate the word analytics as well. I feel like it's like way overused. It's used in a very lazy way as well. It's also like a funny thing because like in, in NFL and the betting community, this word analytics is used so much. But I mean, I work in finance. The word analytics is never used. It's you're just making decisions based on data. Duh. Like what else? Are, like, of course, like it's just it's baked into like what you're doing. Anyway, another rant. <laughs> Chiefs. 2021, obviously expectations elevated as they are every year for this team. I came in with 12, hit at 12 and a half. And this really depended because I know there was a lot of 12 and halves as well. And so I know there were some people out there who ended up not winning their bets, depending on when you got into that. Eight and nine ATS. Ugly. You made no money betting on the Chiefs last year. Pipeg 2.0, we had them around 10 and a half, 11 wins. So certainly less than what they ultimately produced. Traditional Pipeg had them over 11. So we disagreed there. Mean power rank was about four. Seven day power rank volatility, about two and a half spots. So pretty low volatility relative to what we've seen. I don't think we have to get too much into it because this is like very well documented. Chiefs started off slow and they came back hot. What I don't think is well documented is how that happened. I think the, at first the offense was really good and the defense was really terrible. And then the narrative was that the offense kind of struggled and then they turned it back on and they ended up with the same number one in all the analytical categories. They were having horrible turnover luck in the first couple of weeks of the season. And then in those middle weeks, the defense, which was fifth worst in yards per play, was generating the fourth most EPA off turnovers. Right, The defense, as we'll see in the scoring margin over expected, a lot of it came from the defense. They were just generating turnovers. It wasn't this like offensive resurgence. The defense was just generating turnovers, and they were winning off the backs of that. Speaking of the defense, in that clear-cut divide line when they really stepped up, in that 9-1 stretch, they only gave up 14 points or less six of those last 10 games. If you're only giving up 14 points with that offense, you're going to take it every single time. So if you look at that 9-1 stretch, it looks great on paper. The offense looks great. The defense looks great. But there are some pretty bad quarterbacks in that stretch. And then Judah said the turnover luck. I remember people talking about it, that the turnover luck in that first seven, eight games – was not sustainable for this team. It's going to revert back to the mean, and then they almost had no turnover issues at all after that. Getting extremely unlucky on offense and extremely lucky on defense, which was an interesting uh, interesting case. And then they <laughs> stopped getting unlucky on offense and continued getting lucky on defense. I know there was a lot of folks out there patting themselves on the back around, oh, I knew the Chiefs weren't that bad. And I feel like everyone was fighting this straw man because I don't know, maybe there was a, like a handful of loudmouths on ESPN or something like that who were saying, you know, the chiefs are fundamentally different and not good. They're going to miss the playoffs, blah, blah. But I think for the most part, like everyone expected the chiefs to eventually bounce back that Patrick Mahomes isn't all of a sudden bad. 
even if he had some bad games. And also, it's the direction of change, the direction of movement. Like, Patrick Mahomes had an unbelievable start to his career. And so coming off those types of expectations, it's very hard to stay at that level of play, especially as this is a living, breathing league. It adjusts. It's dynamic. It knows the types of things that you're good at. And then teams specifically design and construct their rosters in order to beat you, in order to beat the Chiefs. Like I made this comparison in the past as well, is like the Warriors like had one of those spurts where it's like they were like unstoppable. No one could keep up with them. And the league adapted. And then the delta between their edge over the next kind of team shrank. But I, th- I think this is the beauty of the Chiefs organization, which is that they know that. And this is almost going to be the to frame how they play in 2022. They're essentially building and gearing themselves up for about two to three years from now when the Chargers have to pay Herbert when Russell Wilson's two years older, Derek Carr's two years older, their cap situations for those teams worsens. And they're essentially saying, we've Andy Reid, we have Patrick Mahomes, we're going to get to the playoffs because we have those two, and like anything can happen in the playoffs, and we're gearing up for 2024, 2025, and our cap situation is friendly, and the rest of the division's in cap hill. I think the Chiefs are exactly recognizing that they have to adapt, and this team is not going to look like they did in 2021. I think Andy Reid is also very well known for, I think some of the narrative changed after he finally did win the Super Bowl, but that it was always, he gets his teams competitive and they're good, but they always choke. And now that's happened, obviously, the past couple of years. The Chiefs have also become, is almost inverted as well as they're this team that started off slow sometimes, and then, but you could never count out out the Chiefs. And they come roaring back in the second half of games and end up winning games that you thought that maybe they they weren't going to win. Now they're losing games that you think that they otherwise should have won. And now they're having that Andy Reid choke job down the stretch. And again, the defenses, everyone knows about two guys safety, blah, blah, blah. But that is a form of, again, the league specifically – trying to dynamically adjust to the dominant form of play in that league and then mitigating some of those strengths of that team like the Chiefs. I think that's exactly right. Almost the mind of Andy Reid here is the biggest asset the Chiefs have. Might even be more of a bigger asset than Patrick Mahomes. Everyone's adapting and he's the best at it. Yeah, I just think that, again, like the league, we don't even know necessarily how the league is going to continue to adjust to this. But again, going back to my parallel with the Warriors, is you look at like big men centers now. Like they're almost out of the game unless they could basically shoot threes themselves. And that is like a byproduct of the Warriors is you cannot be a slow 
team and beat a team like the Warriors. And the whole league has changed because of it. And I just think the incremental margin of how much better the Chiefs are than the average team has shrunk. But this is accounting for that. You're looking at 12 from last year and now 10 and a half. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. What do you guys think of, obviously, a very controversial topic? I feel like there's people on both sides of this argument. Loss of Tyreek Hill. How does it affect the offense? Does it matter? Uh, Is Patrick Mahomes just that good that he just turns anybody and everybody who's out there into not necessarily Tyreek Hill, but more than sufficient to continue to execute the Chiefs game plan? Here's my question to both of you. If Tyreek Hill is this important to the offense, why would they let him go then? I think it's massively overblown that Tyreek Hill is a loss. He is a loss, but you have all summer to build a whole new offense without him. I just don't think he's that valuable. And like you said, Judah, I think they're building long-term. But if Tyreek is gone and they let him go, I just don't think it's that big of a blow when they let him go. I think that's a great point. I think the GM and and coaching staff here are in sync. That Andy Reid knows he has to reinvent this offense. What happened last year didn't work. He has to adjust. And I think he said we can do it without Tyreek Hill. And especially not at the cost we're going to have to pay him. Yeah. Anytime yeah, you're a player and your main strength is your speed, your speed is the first thing to go. What made Tyreek Hill so special is his ability to win deep and also to break 12-yard plays into 70-yard plays, as he did in the AFC Championship game. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they shifted his route tree, right? And his depth of target moved from, like, 11 to 7. Because what made Tyreek Hill so special at the 11 range just wasn't working. They're playing too high, and they're going to have to adjust. And Tyreek yeah. Hill isn't the same player when he's in the 7 range. And it's taking him 15 targets now to get 100 yards when it would take him 7. Yeah. Now, if you don't have the Tyreek Hill threat, that as Valdez Scantling, then the defense adjusts. Marquez Valdez Scantling. That's why they signed him. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm dead serious. Even if the defense just has to acknowledge him, that's still something for that offense. There's some really cool data. There's some really cool tracking data that PFF has been working with that Marquez Valdez Scantling basically attracts safeties. More. And like that exact role that you're describing, Marquez Valdez Cantley was second best in the league at. Something in the data there that's like really providing a misleading conclusion. You know, see this year that Marquez Valdez Scantling's taking the top off defenses and that helped Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay and it's going to help Kansas City right now. I allow for that to be true, but I will. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but that is certainly... No, uh, that's interesting, though. Yeah. Yeah. That is certainly in their decision-making process. Mm-hmm. My view is that Tyree Kill is a meaningful loss for this team. I feel like everyone is looking about at this in isolation as if it doesn't affect anything else on the team, as it doesn't affect Kel- Travis Kelsey. As it doesn't affect the running game, as it doesn't affect Patrick Holmes' decision making and chemistry. It affects all of those types of things. And then there's other people who say, 
in the six games or the three games that Tyreek Hill didn't play, Patrick Mahomes did more than enough without Tyreek Hill. Okay, but now do it through a whole season. The question I'd ask, is the market not pricing that in already? Is that not baked into the lower win total? It could be. That's uh, certainly, that's what I do come back to is, this is a more depressed number, at least. And I think there's a wide variety of factors. So I would say actually this lower number is really a byproduct of just that number, that one and a half game gap from last year's 12 and this year's 10 and a half, it's being like taken and allocated to those other teams because they're better and not necessarily because the chiefs have actually gotten worse, but in fact they have, no one's a bigger loser in all of this than the chiefs. Because I think the whole league is like trying to beat the Chiefs. <laughs> and so construct their rosters to beat the Chiefs, to mimic the offense of the Chiefs. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Would you bet it? Would either of you guys bet Chiefs miss playoffs at plus 300? No. At plus 300? No. Plus 300. I, no. I, I just keep. I, will they miss a playoff? If. The only reason why I can think they could miss the playoffs is if somebody gets hurt. And until Mahomes gets hurt or until a bunch of guys get hurt, I just can't get on board. I would say that if Judah's right about Russell Wilson being better than I think he's going to be, then I think that is even further ammunition. Because I said, like I said earlier, and I totally agree with myself, that <laughs> 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 if Russell Wilson is vintage Russell Wilson this year, Brock was going to win the division. As long as, like, Nathaniel Hackett's not one of the worst coaches in the NFL. Still have to get through the Chargers. Can I make my bearish case for the Chiefs, which I think is probably my squarest and most narrative-based take I'll ever have? If you look at the yes. conference championship, <laughs> it's, it's very out of character. That's why I love it. I still I just have that, like, <laughs> I've got telling me this is going to You've got to have some square. You can't. I just have sharp you have, to have, you have to have a lot of square, although that's a very nice compliment. I got one question on the sharp part. How much of sharpness is just people trying to be different versus actually sharp? I feel like oh, maybe yeah. well, there's some like super the, lazy, oh, I'm contrarian. Yeah, that's when I see, like when I listen to the media, and a lot of media is just bad, they try so hard to be smarter than what they were. I'm like, you need to relax, okay? It's just some of the sharp stuff out there isn't really that sharp. They're just trying to be different. Square sharp. Here's my square speculative take. This is a better way of putting it. Okay. Is it square or square sharp? It's just speculative. That's all it is. No square, no sharp, nothing. It's just speculative. (laughs) That in the conference championship game, okay, when the Chiefs didn't score at the end of the first half, they threw that pass to Tyreek Hill in front of the end zone because the offensive coordinator wanted them to throw it. There was a seed of distrust that was sown that day that I don't necessarily know will be repaired, which is that Patrick Mahomes does not trust his offensive coordinator. I think there's a real possibility that Patrick Mahomes is Aaron Rodgers of year one, where he's saying, screw the system. I'm going to do it my way. He gets impatient. He throws into too high when he shouldn't, as opposed to just taking the five-yard check down, the six-yard check down. And it's all going to come back to that conference championship game and them not throwing to Tyree Kill and Patrick Mahomes just not trusting his coaching staff. There's (laughs) nothing square about that. I definitely think that's a good point. If Patrick Mahomes doesn't trust his offense, that's going to ruin a lot of things. I think that's the exact type of 
nuanced observation that is the type of stuff that isn't necessarily revealed in data, okay? So the other thing is too, is like a lot of the things that are being priced in the market, it's under like structured data, all right? And in finance, structured data is like the most worthless data there is. Because it's assumed that if you can get it, it's priced in. Doesn't matter how you slice it and dice it. If you can get it and it's pretty effortless, it's worthless. It's priced in. It's only the unstructured data. It's the new stuff. It's the things that isn't on the paper or the otherwise type of data that you basically have to create yourself. And this is the type of thing that I feel like so many people discount. And one of the things like my cousin Zach was always like very good at around handicapping is like the things that aren't happening on the field and the things that is relationships between players and disagreements because these are human beings still who are doing a job, who are getting paid money and they like people and they don't like people. And I've actually read other things around where Mahomes wanted the enemy out. And he's still around. He's like, why the heck isn't this guy like going and getting a different job? And that there is conflict there. Now, if that's a, a seed that can spurt and grow weeds within that offensive scheme, that could be a huge wild card. That's a great point. It's the first time I've heard it all year. I didn't know about the the enemy thing, though. I wonder if there's something else to it that, that we sucks. don't. It, that maybe he does <laughs> suck, and that's what it is. And it's just, oh, he's just. Or if you go to the enemy, though, he's got Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Of course, he's going to look awesome. I mean, maybe he's not doing that much, and maybe he's just going for the ride. I don't know. It was just a lot to take in there. And if Judah is right and he doesn't trust the offense, would Andy Reid step in? Because Mahomes probably trusts Reid. There's no question about that, right? There's no ands or buts. But if there's any question and maybe Mahomes in the back of the head is like, screw this, I'm going to go do my own thing, and maybe he doesn't want to sit in the offense, then you could see the cracks in the team. And then could it amplify? I really don't know. It also, yeah, I love the parallel to LaFleur and Rodgers because that one was Rodgers was doing his whole pouty season. And as we know, it led – people to believe, oh, maybe Aaron Rodgers is washed. You know, then he comes back with back-to-back -back MVP seasons. And it wasn't that he was washed. He was just being a little bitch. And usually people who are super competitive can get butt hurt and maybe things aren't like the organization isn't going in the direction. We know that's exactly what was with Rodgers. Like he wanted like his fingerprints over all the different moves and, oh, you're not consulting me and you're not taking in the things that I want into consideration. And maybe as Mahomes gets a bigger and bigger sense of himself and he wants to have more of a Brady type approach of where, hey, I want an opinion, I want my opinion to be reflected in the game's decision-making and the play calling and whatnot. And maybe there is like a lot of headbutting with this enemy. And again, I think the market speaks volumes that he hasn't gotten the head coaching job over the last couple of years. It's because the teams are doing their own due diligence doing a reverse attribution analysis and saying, why are the Chiefs good? The Chiefs are good for this reason. And one of the reasons they're not is because of Eric Bieniemy. Also, Matt Nagy's back. <laughs> yeah, he's back. He got a bad rap in Chicago, but he did make... Chicago. 
Yeah, he, he did make Trubisky look good one year. That's pretty impressive in my opinion. Nagy was the OC, and he got a job, but Bienemy can't. And now Nagy's back. There's a non-zero chance in my view that this is – it's almost subconscious. Mahomes is going to play a different style from here on out. He doesn't even necessarily know it. He's going to make a different decision. Yeah. Not even by his own choice. It's the most insidious kind. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to correct that then. Yeah, exactly. You don't even know. Yeah. Which is like, what's wrong with Patrick Mahomes? That's it. He's not making the same decisions. This was awesome. All the great insights crystallizing here at the end after two hours. I liked that we disagreed on a lot of stuff as well because, first of all, I love disagreement because that's how it makes you rethink your own arguments to make sure that you're either re-underwriting your view or otherwise modifying it kind of accordingly. And instead of just saying, yeah, I agree, yeah, I agree, yeah, I agree. So glad that we were, we had some disagreements on this. But we do very strongly agree on Raiders Under. Do you like Raiders Under, Dan? You like Raiders I, Under, too, because you hate I the do. offensive line. I hate their offense. I actually hate that whole team in general. The wide receiver room is terrible. That's the other thing. Yeah, that's where they're most vulnerable, yeah. It's Which is odd. It's odd for you to say it out loud because everybody's like, oh, Devontae Adams is awesome. But like when you yeah. say they don't have any depth, they have no depth. I have, yeah. Yeah. I, I was almost willing to make the case that in the area, the position groups where they supposedly improve most, they're actually going to have worse production in 2022 and 2021. Yeah, don't be shy. That's what don't I, I admit <laughs> to say that. <laughs> what you're really saying is Hunter Renfro season. That's what's going to happen at this rate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh. It's a great point because actually the Raiders ended up using, what, like six, seven wide receivers last year, but it was because they had really the depth to be able to absorb that one. Yeah. They used Henry Ruggs, Say Jones, Brian Edwards. Like all those guys are like fine receivers. They're not lighting the world on yeah. fire. They're not Matt Collins. Matt Collins is terrible. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like the way we're talking about this and framing the issues is not only are the Raiders egregiously mispriced on a standalone basis, but they're playing in the toughest division in the NFL. It's crazy. So I said, look, this is like a screaming cell. There's never been a more screaming cell. I almost, that makes me question whether there's something I don't know. You know what? There's also, we can see this, is the books in local jurisdictions are tilted towards that local team. Especially if it has a big fan base. Where's the Raiders? Now, I don't know if the fan base is big enough to actually influence, like, one of the sharpest kind of jurisdictions for sports betting. But that makes sense, though, because there are these unders, or this is juice to the over way more than any other book. After all this discussion, too, like I actually take back what I say, and that one, we know this is bit, essentially there's we have multiple independent advanced statistics that says this team was a seven win team, and I said I think. Net, they still got better over the offseason. And actually, I think I, I actually disagree with that. It's coming around. Somebody's got to take fourth. They all can't make the playoffs. 
And the, what are the odds that these teams they, all have a nine and eight or better record? It's so laughably slim. It's such a narrative based bet. It almost the way you phrase that leads me to think that there's some price saying that like everyone knows the AFC West is so good, and it's kind of just assumed. Like, oh, I know the AFC West is going to be so good. The Raiders must be like that good too. And it comes like almost builds on itself, where you don't give it much thought because. AFC West so strong, and you talk about it for the most part the Chiefs and the Chargers and the Broncos and Russell Wilson, and then looped in there is like, oh the Raiders were a playoff team last year and they got Devontae Adams they're going to be better. This seems like a slam dunk under you got to look at because the other thing is what I think should be influencing the pricing is because they made the most splashy off season reposition, which is the trade for Devontae Adams. And also even got a name brand player like Chandler Jones. So like that in itself almost obscures any of the other changes that were made. And everyone's very well aware of Josh McDaniels. He's definitely one of the most, maybe besides Doug Peterson, probably the most well-known name of new coaches this year. So I feel like the market itself is like not pricing as much uncertainty with Josh McDaniels as you would a typical first head, first year head coach. Right. McDaniels wasn't a previous head coach. Like, if you didn't have the Broncos stint from a while ago, I think it would be very different. Which is, like, there's a little bit of tempered kind of excitement because he didn't really have a successful tenure at all. First of all, I don't get what he was a head coach at the, for the Broncos for two years. Yeah, T-Bone those years. years. Yeah, and but they went to the playoffs and they won a playoff game. Like, I, that's why I don't, I don't get, oh, he was a failed... I don't, I, think he, I, don't, I don't think he was coaching the, the Tebow. Uh... And he drafted Tebow. They won First round. nine or ten games and then beat the Steelers. But the Tebow year was a year after McDaniels was fired. Ah. Yes, that's right. Because I remember, in fact, it was what? It was the old dude. And, like, he hated Tebow and hated yeah. that, John like, Fox. he was, like, forced to keep playing him because they kept winning. <laughs> He also had no loyalty to him because it was Josh McDaniels that drafted Tim Tebow. And Josh McDaniels never got to see it through. Yeah. That's right. Also, the real takeaway from that Tebow conversation is how many people listening to this right now remember Tebow playing? That was 10 years ago. I was always watching like, sports when I was like six or seven. So like, yeah. I could go. I vividly remember that Steelers game. Yeah, me too. Look, I referenced the 2006 Chargers, and I was six, and I remember that season so clearly. <laughs> so that? six in 2006. Yeah. He just graduated college. Yeah. Wow, this is the third time I've ever felt old. <laughs> I'm 22. It's only gonna get worse, Dan. Oh, I, I've embraced it. I just go to the gym a lot of time and embrace it anymore. Some days I feel it, some days I don't. It's just it, there's some stuff out there. I'm just like, man, I'm old. Actually, I definitely recommend everyone go and watch on YouTube. There's a couple documentaries, I think, like short form, like amateur made, but still pretty good on, I think it was 2007 Chargers. Maybe it was 2006. I think it was 2007. Though. But we're, yes, where they were first in offense, first in defense, lighting it up, and the special teams literally like giving up two touchdowns a game to where they literally missed the playoffs. It's absolutely hilarious. I think there's so many people that actually don't know about that phenomenon. And it's like such a black eye on the Chargers organization. Isn't that the is, Chargers yes. possible? 
great offense, great defense, and you special teams is so bad, you miss the playoffs. That's the most charged thing I've ever heard of. Alrighty, that was very meaty, very substantive, great analysis. Thanks, Dan, for jumping on. And again, great job, Judah. Anytime I'm changing my mind on the same episode, means there's definitely some meaningful thoughts, some meaningful commentary being made. One of the very few things, in fact, on this episode that all three of us are aligned on is actually Raiders under. And it seems like the Raiders, in fact, should be like more like five or six wins, potentially. Everything kind of lines up with that. I would be surprised, like four and 13, one of the worst teams in the NFL, maybe. And this is an egregiously priced then. So we're pounding the table on Raiders alt under seven and a half. Good stuff. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's closing bell.